We've all seen somebody blow up in anger, and it's not a pretty sight. But is there ever a time when anger is justified in God's sight? Turn to John chapter 2 and join us for Grow in Grace as we recall a time when Jesus got angry for the right reason and in the right way. Anger is a problem for all of us. Ephesians 4.25, New Testament, Paul wrote, Be angry, but do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not fall into sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. Great to have you along with us as we continue our study of John's Gospel today on Grow in Grace, we come across some people who were taking advantage of others and doing so in the house of God. They were pretending to be religious, and as you might imagine, this upset Jesus greatly. Very sadly, this sort of thing is still happening in our world today. So let's make sure we don't get caught up in it ourselves. Here now with the details is Pastor Ed Ray in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 12, where we left off last time. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days because the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Then he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the changers' money and turned over the tables. He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the final feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, miracles that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For I knew what was in man. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that you have left it for us so that we might understand you and we might come to love you more. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is both lamb and lion, we see in this section of scripture. It speaks of his anger, which is interesting to me. 
It always reminds me of the story of the pastor who was riding his bicycle down the street in his neighborhood. He rounded the corner and there was a little boy with a lawnmower and a for sale sign on it. He stopped and he said, why are you selling the lawnmower? And the little boy said, well, I want to buy a bicycle. The pastor said, well, I've got a bicycle and I need a lawnmower. Why don't you take my bicycle and ride it around a little bit and I'll check out your mower. He said, deal. Gets on the bike, rides off, and the pastor tries to start the mower. The kid comes back a few minutes later and the pastor is sweating and puffing and huffing. His face is red. And he says to the little boy, I can't get this thing to start. And the boy says, my dad says you have to cuss. (laughs) The pastor said, it's been so long since I've cussed, I don't remember how. The little boy said, you keep pulling on that cord long enough and it'll come back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Anger, why do we have it? What is it? Why did God build this in such a way that we easily turn to anger? And we all know negative results of anger in our own lives or others. You know, we cuss or some even like to hit sheetrock and things like that. But it doesn't do any good. Are there any positive aspects of anger? And the answer is, yes, there is. Jesus is angry and driving out money changers here. Now, it doesn't use the word anger here, but it does when we were back in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He's in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there's a man who has a paralyzed hand. We're not told why, whether it was an injury or from birth. But it says the leaders of the synagogue were watching Jesus and this man because they knew Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath, which was against their understanding of what the Sabbath law was. And Jesus stood up, and Mark 3, 5 says, and he looked with anger at them. God the Son got angry. Why? Because they didn't want to help the man. And they didn't want Jesus to help the man because of some man-made law on the Sabbath. Religious hypocrisy was all over that particular system. Well, that's what's going on right here. It is a great deal of hypocrisy. People saying how holy they were, But their motive was something completely different. Anger is a problem for all of us. Ephesians 4.25, New Testament, Paul wrote, Be angry, but do not sin. So it's possible to be angry and not fall into sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, the last part of that verse has made my wife and I spend many nights up late (laughs) talking things through. And it helps, you know, it keeps you from just sleeping on it and being angry all night and wake up in the morning angry. Forces you to settle things, which usually means I say I'm sorry. James chapter 1 verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We get angry, but it doesn't lead to rightness. It goes the opposite way. Now, John wrote this gospel for a very specific reason. 
There are three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that were written 70 years earlier. John is an old man when he writes this. It's years later because he's trying to fill in some of the blanks of things that were not told in the earlier epistles to correct Gnostic heresy, a heresy that had come up during John's later years, but most of all, so that people could read this and understand who Jesus is. He said so in chapter 20, the, at the end of the Gospel of John, verse 30. He said, the primary purpose for writing was to convince. Listen, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, believing that you may have life, eternal life, in his name. So John has provided, it turns out, seven miracles. We looked at the first one last time. The first miracle that Jesus did, John said, was to turn water to wine at a little wedding feast in a small village called Cana. It was an act of compassion on Jesus' part because the couple had run out of refreshments for the wedding party, and he took pity on them and turned water into wine. Now, John is going to move very quickly through the life of Jesus in the next few chapters. John is the only one of these four Gospels that's in chronological order, meaning this is the first Passover that Jesus was ministering under, and there is this turning over of the money changers. That story appears in the other three Gospels, but at the end of those Gospels, because it happened just before Jesus died. In fact, the Last Supper was the Seder dinner, part of the Passover meal. So John says Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry, and then the other three recorded at the end of the ministry what's going on. Two separate events. This one, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, was at the first Passover. When we get to chapter 6 of this gospel, we'll see that there is another Passover that Jesus comes to Jerusalem for. And then when we get to chapter 12, there's a third Passover. Why take the time to explain that, Pastor? This is the only way that we know how long Jesus was ministering. Three years. Because John records three different Passovers. So, they appear in the other Gospels, but they're at the end of Jesus' ministry. It appears here at the beginning of his ministry. You're listening to Pastor Ed Ray on Growing Grace. Let's listen to the second half of Pastor Ed's message now from John chapter 2. There are three parts to this section, and it can be summed up in both lion and lamb, that Jesus is both. The first 13 through 17, Jesus is removing barriers. He's tearing down impediments, things that would stop people from worshiping. And that's why he's so direct 
angry, you can say. Second section is that he prophesies, he predicts his own death, burial, and resurrection, 18 through 22. And then the last section that Jesus didn't trust anyone because he knew what was in the hearts of humanity. So that's where we're going. Let's jump into verse 12. I think it's a fascinating part of scripture. And he starts here by saying, Jesus went down to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful place. You can visit it today. You need to go to Israel. Every believer should go and walk around that small nation because it will show you that how true scripture is. Archaeologists are digging all over the country using the Bible as a map where different villages and cities were. So Capernaum has been excavated. You can walk in the city streets. It's amazing. He's there with his mother and his brothers. Now this idea of Jesus having brothers occurs nine times in the gospel and once in the book of Acts. I grew up in a church that said those weren't really his brothers, those were his cousins. The most natural reading of it is that Jesus had brothers and sisters, in fact, by Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. Jesus was born of a virgin, but that doesn't say anywhere that she remained a virgin the rest of her life. So she evidently had a normal marriage relationship with Joseph, and they had other brothers. So they're going down to the Passover, or up actually, it usually says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet, but it's really a spiritual statement. You're going up to worship God where he has his temple. So this Passover feast, I need to give you a little background or the rest of the story doesn't make much sense. Three religious feasts in the Jewish religion that require males 20 years old and older to go to Jerusalem. Three times a year, every Jew who was within traveling distance of Jerusalem would have to go there to pay a tax and to participate in the festival. It had become a major festival in the first century. Two million people more came to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. It was a happy time. It was a great time. They would go and they would see old friends and family and stay with family. Two million people would swarm into the city. They didn't have enough inns and hotels, so People were expected to take in their relatives, first of all, and then even perfect strangers. They prepared the city for all this influx of pilgrims. They cleaned up the road, straightened out, took all the rocks out of it so people could walk without stumbling. They washed all the eating utensils in your house, all the cooking utensils, and they swept the house clean still happens today in orthodox jewish homes why because the next day after the seven days of the feast of the passover is another feast called the feast of unleavened bread unleavened bread means bread that doesn't have any yeast in it it didn't rise we would call it pita bread maybe today it comes from when the Jews left Egypt when they were slaves for 400 years. And Moses came 
performed 10 miracles, the first nine, and then the last one that was called a Passover because an angel was to pass over the house of people who believed, who put the lamb's blood on the door of their home. And they had to leave the next day in a hurry so they didn't have any bread that was risen. So they had unleavened bread, and thus the Feast of Unleavened Bread is eight days. Seven days after the Passover is complete, the next day was this other feast. Now, we have worship going on at the temple, and you need to kind of wrap your mind around that. It's just not a casual visit. They're there to worship God, and God promises to meet them there if they would come. Now, he doesn't promise to show up physically, although in this case it is Jesus showing up physically. But just like sometimes when we're worshiping here, I feel the presence of God, and many of you do too, I understand. So when you come and worship God, and I'm really speaking to people here who are in this sanctuary or out on the radio or listening on the internet, that it may sound strange to say God is here, but he actually makes his presence known. And a clear story I can tell that I was walking down this aisle after a service a few months back, and there was a lady sitting there weeping. And I thought, oh my goodness, something's happened in her life, you know. So I said, can I help you? And she said, no, I don't understand. I said, understand what? She said, I've gone to a lot of other churches before, but when I come to this church and the minute the worship band starts singing and everybody else starts singing, I start crying. I can't stop myself. What is that? That's the Holy Spirit. He's telling you you're in the right place, and he's speaking to you. And she cried even more, so I wasn't much help. But that's what's going on here. They're at Jerusalem in the temple because they want to sense God's presence. They want to pray. They want to grow. So we have this Passover, one in the 6th chapter and one in the 12th chapter, three different Passovers. And they're worshiping, verse 14, Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers doing business. Now, the temple sits on this hill called the Temple Mount today, Mount Moriah, and it has three areas. The outer area that's open, no roof on it, was called the Court of the Gentiles for a very specific reason. It was as close to the building to the Ark of the Covenant, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was the closest that a non-believing Gentile could come. But God wanted them to come because he wanted them to experience being in a worship service where God was being lifted up. Now, Jesus had been to the temple probably every year of his life because they lived in Nazareth, 70 miles away, and it was within walking distance. We know he was there when he was 12 years old, and when his parents went looking for him, they asked him why he didn't show up, and he said, you should have known I'd be about my father's business in the temple. So he is there, and there he's dealing with these merchants, they turned it into a mall, okay? And the animal sellers 
we're charging many times the market rate of what the animals would be worth. If you went to Passover, you were supposed to sacrifice a lamb, and there was one lamb for 10 people. So that's how we know how many people were there in the first century, more than 2 million people. But if you had come a long distance, God didn't expect you to carry your tithe, 10%, all the way there. If you were a grain farmer and you had harvested a lot of grain, say in North Africa, in Libya or Tripoli, you couldn't carry it all back to Jerusalem for the feast. And so he said, sell it. And then when you get to Jerusalem, buy a sacrificial animal. So it was God's idea to have animals available, just not where they were. This is Deuteronomy 14, 24. But if the journey is too long for you, coming all the way from Africa or somewhere else, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, and maybe your favorite product was olive oil, and you, you would produce gallons of it every year, and it was too heavy to carry, and you're not able to carry the tithe or place it where the Lord your God chose to put his name, it is too far for you, then you shall exchange it for money. You sell your 10%, take the cash, and go to Jerusalem. And thus, there are money changers and people who are selling animals. So if Jesus isn't mad because they're selling animals, what is he upset about? He's upset that they were preventing people from getting to God. Important concept here. We talk about it a lot on staff, the pastoral staff in this church. How do we make it easy for non-believers, court of the Gentiles, to come to church and hear the good news? How do we make it easy for them to even get into a church? You know, I have friends from before I was a Christian who think the ceiling's going to fall down when they come to church. And I always tell them, no, it's earthquake-proof. You know, it's been approved by the... <laughs> Uniform building code, and it can handle it. If you're sitting here worried that it's going to come down because you never thought you could go into church without it self-destructing, you're wrong. And God wants you to know that. The temple was built that way for Gentiles. You remember God's promise to Abraham was that he would have so many offspring, so many descendants, that it would be as numerous as the stars. And he would take them to a place... Abraham had taken his son to Mount Moriah, the same place we're talking about, and that they would be a light to the Gentiles. You see, God's strategy in human history is that the Jews would make God known to the rest of the earth. If you look at a world map, you'll see that Israel is right at the place where Africa and Asia and Europe meet, a little tiny country the size of New Jersey. But three continents meet there, so every caravan that came to, towards Europe had to pass through Israel right by the Temple Mount. It's the only way you can get through the country. Why? Because God wanted the world to see what it meant to have a relationship with him. These guys have set up a mall that keeps the Gentiles from seeing the worship, from participating in the worship. Jesus is upset 
that they're keeping people from coming to church. Thanks for being with us for Grow in Grace. We're studying the Gospel of John right now with Pastor Ed Ray. And if you joined us late or you just want to hear this again, go online to thepackinghouse.org. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. Or call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. This program is made possible through the support of listeners just like you. We have an exciting resource to tell you about today. It's Why Grace Changes Everything by Chuck Smith. Grace is a word we love to hear, but many of us don't know what it really means. Sure, it's how God saves us, but it's also how we grow. Pastor Chuck Smith shares insights from his own life and reveals how grace changes everything in our lives when properly understood and applied. Just give us a call at 844-77-GRACE and we'll send this your way for a gift of any amount. That's 844-77-GRACE. We'd also like to hear what God is up to in your life. Is he using this program to help you grow in grace? We want to know. Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's all the time we have for today, but mark this spot in John's Gospel and join us next time as together we grow in grace with Pastor Ed Ray. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony.